Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here, one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. We are here to do a season two expose on Star Wars Resistance, jumping over five ep four episodes. And with me today to help with that is Gabby Martin and Thomas Harper. Gabby, how you doing? I am doing well, ready to blaze through these episodes and break them down. Awesome. And Thomas, how are you doing? I, I like your description as, as a, uh, an expose. Like, I feel like we're about to have a very salacious discussion of <laughs> the Star Wars cartoon, and I am totally on board for it. <laughs> what is life truly like on the Colossus? The lives, the deceit. Find out Niku's true secrets. <laughs> yeah. we, we need to do one of those, those E! True Hollywood story openings for this. <laughs> <laughs> give it time give it time well let's uh and I, i'll start with by saying like i really am enjoying the season i love having star wars weekly we soon will get more of it weekly and i'm grateful for the time period we live in neither of you knew the torture of what it was like to be in the 1980s and and have either the ewoks tv show or the droids tv show you know the both animated versus what we're getting today. It's a uh, golden age. I'll say the nineties were when I got into star Wars as a kid was to some extent like that, because nobody knew that Lucas was making or even was thinking of the prequels. So you had the special editions come out in theaters and I did a backflip just because I didn't have to hear my dad talk about like, well, if you could only see these movies in the theater, like that was the new Star Wars, like those little bits that Lucas added in. And, uh, you know, then of course you got the prequels and then we had that, you know, sort of second uh, wave where you didn't get a whole lot other than the Clone Wars and some books and whatnot. So yeah, this is tsunami time is good time for Star Wars. Exactly. There were definite dry spells and, in, in, you know, on the flip side, there was lots of great sci-fi in the eighties and nineties uh, late 80s and throughout all the 90s, especially with Star Trek dominating in that time period. But now Star Wars is dominating with some really fun, great stories, and Resistance is one of them. So let's let's start with episode two, a quick salvage run. And just for the quick highlight, they go to Dakar, which is smoldering, and there's remains of the First Order fleet that was destroyed there uh, and uh, you can see the crater of the resistance base and they do a supply run to salvage some parts from what's left of a um, dreadnought. Uh, Thomas, what are some of your thoughts on the legal issues that were in this episode? This, first of all, was one of my absolute favorite episodes of Resistance, hands down. I did not think that they would get to Dakar until maybe midway through this season. So the pacing threw me all off when they come out of hyperspace and they're, they're right there. Um, one of the biggest things for me ties back to the last episode that we recorded, because in the end of uh, the, the first episode or during the first episode there, you see Tam symbolically sort of put that First Order helmet on and she's now officially in it. Uh, as if she weren't before at the end of season one. And we just discussed briefly like what that might mean for her. Well, now we fast forward into this episode and she's no longer referred to as Tam by the other First Order officers. She's now cadet and whatever her numerical designation is. And 
we didn't dive into it, but that's pretty significant for Tam there. Not because she's getting to do what she wants to do and fly so much, but all of a sudden now the stakes are higher. So she carries this little secret recording device or the, the comm link onto uh, the First Order Star Destroyer with her. Whereas before, maybe that's bad on you civilian, uh, will wag the finger at you or maybe do bad things as the First Order does. Now all of a sudden she's under their jurisdiction. She's a First Order soldier, even though she's just a, a low ranking cadet. And that exposes her to a whole lot of criminal liability because now they don't have, arguably she's playing by a whole different set of rules at this point. Yeah, and I want to say it was something like uh, 833 or something along those lines. 533. 533. Five, three, three. <laughs> uh, ballpark. Uh, That's solid Star Wars trivia. Yeah, yeah, it's like, wait, what was it? What was it? I remember 33. Uh, yeah, good, good job, Gabby. Mm -hmm. uh, your thoughts, uh, since you just... <laughs> you know, brought up Tam's her new number uh, on this episode. Yeah, again, and and I'll I'll probably bring it up later, but um, in some of the other episodes. But there there really should be. I mean, you know, we can go back and forth of whether the First Order constitutes a military organization or whether it's kind of just a hybrid military, like independent contractor. Um, you know, employee organization. Um, but I think if it, if it does lean on the more private contractor side, those guys need to have a union. I mean, it is a hostile <laughs> work environment. <laughs> and they need some sort of protection for how easily things change and how easily, um, you know, things can go wrong at the slightest mistake. You know, they can get blasted out of the sky. So I think they really, you know, again, it's a hostile work environment. They need some sort of protection. Yeah. Um, I would do more on that with, with the later episodes. <laughs> but yeah, not, not, not uh, friendly for employees or nope. conscripts or whatever term that we end up giving them. Uh, speaking of classifications, now we have the pirates who are it's are they sanctioned now? Uh Thomas, do you have any thoughts on like are, are they still pirates or it's or a really odd situation because it's it's this relationship that's born of necessity. Like Captain Doza doesn't want the pirates on board because he suddenly likes Kragen and like wants to have a space beer with him. It's they're about the only uh, the only folks on board that can offer a little bit of extra protection because the you know other than defensive cannons and the aces that's all they've got and Kragen has a big heavily armored ship uh, the galleon and a crew to man it they need those bodies and they need that sort of combat experience um, I thought about and I don't this would be a, a deep hole to dive down to, into but I would love a scene where Doza is like handing him a letter of Mark, like in the, uh, the days of sailing vessels and, and pirates on the high seas where he's given Craig in like a little hollow disc. And he's all officially allowed to pirate on behalf of just the Colossus, just under limited terms. But it's really weird because you see Craig sort of take direction from Doza, but he still gets pissed off and bucks Doza's leadership when it doesn't suit him. You also see him sort of in this episode conduct 
vaguely sanctioned piracy. Like he's on board the dreadnought for a specific mission. And the first thing that he sends his, uh, his men to do is to go pillage supplies. <laughs> so I, I don't know quite know how to describe them exactly. Yeah. I let's get into the salvage run in, in just a minute, but let's, let's get into the issue of, uh, are the pirates vis-a-vis -vis the Colossus employees or independent contractors? And I, I'm not sure if Thomas, that was your issue or Gabby, if that was yours, but uh, whoever, whoever proposed it, uh, like your thoughts. Well, you're uh, Josh, you are at ground zero for this battle right now in California uh, as it pertains to Uber and, and this fight that they've been waging nationwide over that exact issue. What counts as an, independent contractor versus an employee. Um, I was curious what your, what your thought on this is. Where do they come down for these pirates? Uh, well, uh, it, it's almost a little more like Silicon Valley because, <laughs> and not the, not the great TV show, but the actual Silicon Valley, <laughs> that uh, when, during the Obama years, when the Affordable Care Act came out, you saw... Uh, a lot of the larger companies try getting away from having employees so they'd avoid, you know, the, in, the expenses of healthcare and all the things that, you know, were for employee protection. So you saw them, some of them spin out their own companies that just did staffing, trying to, you know, have this illusion that, you no, know, these are just independent contractors that we're bringing on board not employees and the only employees that we have are the managers of the independent contractors and i find that super disingenuous that's just me it's just it's like okay you guys are playing a shell game so you don't have to play you know protections for employees in this case healthcare uh even though the theoretically the staffing company does and um uh you know, like doing some uh, independent contractor work, like doing document review, the staffing agencies, you know, classify people as employees, and thus that's how you can get medical insurance for people doing document review. So it's one thing if somebody's a true independent contractor. It's another thing if somebody's just trying to scam the rules so you don't incur any of the costs associated with having employees. So what's this make the, you know, uh, Cragen's pirates? Uh, something else. <laughs> it's just, they're in a, it's like they're a weird uh, forced community. Yeah. I was, I was just going to say that. I was like, it doesn't seem, I mean, because what they're getting is if of any form of payment is food, right? They're getting food and room and board um and it seems almost like and and I, I kind of thought of this later when you know the the idea of rationing comes up is that they're being forced there they're not being allowed to kind of leave i mean i guess theoretically they could but they're almost a forced labor situation there may be a bit of you know slavery forced labor human trafficking kind of going on maybe unbeknownst to anybody there, but they're being forced to do a job and they're not getting any sort of benefits or healthcare that we know of. Um, and they're really just being forced to work without anywhere to go and, you know, forced to kind of work for the Colossus. Yeah, I 
I, I see where you're coming from. I don't know if it's forced labor as opposed to, okay, like, we have food. I'm like, this is an emergency situation. We all had to flee. We're all stuck together now. And, like, the pirates couldn't survive on their own. And the Colossus couldn't survive on their own. So, again, it's like a forced community of, of an alliance to survive. So I don't know if... No, being if it falls into like conscripted, pressed into service, any of those things, uh, but it's definitely in a different category that yeah. kind of an emergency situation. The IRS has a category of uh, they're called statutory employees. They're like hybrids, and I th the the problem I think for classifying them as an employee is the the issue of control. Yeah, like Doza has control to an extent over Cragen where Cragen wants to follow his orders. But like we see pretty regularly that Cragen does what he wants to do. He does what he wants to do and it aligns with those as interest when he benefits from it. And I, Gabby, I think this goes to your point. Mm -hmm. They're really not getting much out of this deal other than the ability to, to a have a little bit of safety. Uh, Cause I think given their relationship with the first order, they were right within the crosshairs uh, as they left Castellan. Um, but they're getting sort of a little bit of tacit allowance to do what they were going to do anyhow. I, you mm -hmm. know, under normal circumstances, Doza would have probably stopped uh, stopped them from pirating that uh, First Order ship. Here they can kind of freely operate. And mm -hmm. the room and board situation is interesting because we really didn't see until this last episode where they, like how they were living. Mm -hmm. And then there's a shot of them in the hangar that they're living in. <laughs> And they're just like sleeping all over these crates and just like, like every, it's like Jabba's palace, except it's Kragen's crew. So Doza's is not exactly giving them a whole lot. And, and at least before the, uh, the scavenging episode, not a lot of them are eating very well either. So they're not getting a whole lot out of this deal. Yeah. And given the size of the Colossus, were they, are there additional quarters? Like could people be offered quarters? I I don't know. I mean, like, I get it's a, it's a tanker, but it does have living space. So what do we get here? And uh, on some levels, it reminds me of, you know, the Robotech Macross series of, you know, in the STF-1 with having to rebuild the town of Macross for people to live in inside the ship. And it's like, do we have some of that going on <laughs> uh, as well? Uh, or is this like a flying fighting uh apartment complex it's really weird uh thomas let's uh let's hit the issue of salvaging the dreadnought and uh because i do, we might have a difference of opinion here so like mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on uh, you know, did the first order give up any like if their military interest in the wreckage and abandoned it um, cause there, there's a custom in the sea that a warship is, belongs to the nation. Mm -hmm. So, which is why, like when, when we found the Bismarck, like we didn't, you know, like there wasn't a salvage operation on it. Uh, like it's, it's pretty verboten to go salvage a warship and there are American World War II wrecks disappearing in the Pacific, uh, uh, with the likely thought that they're scrappers that are literally pulling them off the ocean floor to go scrap them. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes us very angry because 
we look at those as places for war dead. Yeah. Uh, what about the debris that's in now in orbit around a car? I think it's it's a they realize it's a risky situation, but I I don't think that they had legal authority to to go in there and and pillage it just because the first order had run off and uh, chased the the remainder of the resistance off the car. I don't think necessarily because there were no first order ships parked there that they had necessarily abandoned it. And I look at the the amount of time that had passed. Certainly, you make a really good point that no matter how much time has passed, you know, a military vessel may still, uh, you know, have some restrictions on it. But here, there's literally still a smoking hole in the side of Dakar where the resistance base was. The First Order has not been gone very long. Uh, that wreckage is still pretty fresh. And I think the First Order's argument would be, we still have a security interest in this this property. There's still you know, possibly classified material on board. There's materiel that we intend to come back and use for our purposes. Uh, it's our property and, and you can't just come in here, especially, uh, you know, an enemy force uh, who, who's harboring a spy come in here and pick it apart for, you know, whatever purposes, whether it's intelligence gathering, um, war fighting materials or otherwise. Whenever you see, and this it doesn't necessarily have to do with, um, wrecked ships, but anytime, you know, a U.S. asset goes down, so a warplane or, or even a, a drone or something like that, there's an intense effort to really secure that, that property. And, and even if it's not secured immediately, uh, it doesn't mean that folks are free to, to come in and grab what they want. So I think it was a situation of necessity for Doza and the crew. They had to go in and, and salvage what they could to get the hyperdrive operational but I think it made them fair targets when the first order showed back up. So I'm going to take a different point of view uh, because I still reject the concept that the first order is a nation state. <laughs> and, you know, like this is a military uh, supremacist group that's not interested in governing. They're interested in uh, dominating through fear and they did not take measures to destroy the remaining wreckage. They threw a fleet of, what, 30 Star Destroyers to go chase uh, mm -hmm. three resistance ships running out of fuel. They're not exactly known for taking care of those left behind, uh, especially <laughs> as we see with, with later, you know, later episodes of, uh, of their view. And I, I view this as it was a wrecked vessel they're not military um, under U.S. law. I, I believe it meets the definition of wrecked. Uh, that would be again, for uh, uh, maritime law. That means uh, wrecked off the coast of the United States or adjacent waters, and it's abandoned. You know, like they didn't leave people behind to salvage it. There wasn't uh, a residual force left over. They let it die. And the crew either abandoned ship, uh, which also raises the issue that there might have been survivors and they didn't stick around. So uh, I think the, the vessel was clearly abandoned because nobody was left. And you can, uh, you know, there, there are cases going back to the 1800s uh, that derelict and abandoned vessels either on the high seas or anywhere else uh, belongs to the first finder who uh, re, uh, reduces 
uh, it to possession. And that's uh, Wyman v. Hurlbert, 12 Ohio 81, 87, 1843. So I, I believe that it was fair game uh, because uh, the first order is not a country. It's I dare a, you to make that argument to Captain Phasma to her face. It's, <laughs> what the, well, since she's kind of burnt out and crispy right now, sure, that's probably <laughs> no, no, directly to Gwendolyn Christie. That could get messy. But, that's, what the, <laughs> that's what the resistance wants you to think. <laughs> it's, it's not a nation. It's it's a it'd be like neo Nazis taking over a town and saying that they're a government, and <laughs> they're not. It's like, no, you guys are still terrorists, and we're going to bomb you into submission. That's how we roll. I, we, we've been speculating, and, and this won't necessarily come up in the legal discussion of the latest episode, but we haven't really seen a whole lot of what the First Order has been doing after they blow up Hosnian Prime. But there's a line in the episode The Engineer where this uh, stranded giving- passenger – says that the First Order has been busy invading planets and whole planets have just been giving up to them. It's almost like I, I would equate them, I guess, at least in modern times to ISIS a little bit. They're, they're this uh, religious-based organization uh, that's rapidly devouring land and they don't necessarily have any kind of legal claim to that land, but for having wiped out the the sort of military protection that previously defended the land and so i I think we're gonna see i hope we see more of that but i that's the model that i'm operating on in my brain and i i agree with that you know whether it's isis or the taliban model i i agree with that now that doesn't mean people are going to vote them into office afterwards but i you know we, we still have a tease of there's at least one senator that survived There has to be a continuity of government plan somehow. And while we've talked about that to to some degree before, uh, and the galaxy is now at war, people would rise up. Now, it depends how demilitarized they are. It depends if people have their own, like, National Guard forces or if if, uh, 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 Calamari is going to ramp up production real fast. Uh, all those things could be seen in Resistance or Rise of Skywalker. So, uh, but let's let's press on. Uh, you know, we have the uh, and uh, Gabby or Thomas, and and again, this does hit Law of War, but we have civilian pilots taking on a paramilitary force. Uh, what is their designation? Are they like the flying tigers? Is this just pure self-defense? Um, uh, Gabby, why don't you take uh, take this first? Yeah, so I, I guess it goes in part back to the discussion of what are we categorizing all these people as? Are they kind of independent contractors? Are they private um, military contractors? Is this all an army? Um, you know, how do we kind of identify the Colossus and how do we identify um, these different groups that are aboard the Colossus? And one thing that came to mind when, when you were talking about, you know, these, these racers now being kind of um, soldiers and, and, and pilots for the Colossus, the thing that I found interesting was they still use their, theoretically, um, 
their old gear, their old gear, their old ships that have no kind of identification of, you know, being in allegiance with the Colossus as opposed to, you know, um, the First Order and, you know, the Stormtroopers and, and all of that kind of stuff being kind of one unit. Um, so what's to say that they don't go flying off and the First Order sees one of these ships and how is the First Order supposed to know that they are now in allegiance with the Colossus, that they're kind of pilots for the Colossus? That's a really good point. And it goes to sort of the heart of like why the First Order would be upset with this whole situation to begin with, because the easiest way to have a valid military target is for them to be sort of designated hostile. Mm -hmm. And you think, think to World War II, like a, an us versus them kind of war where how do you tell the Germans are the Germans or the Nazis are the Nazis? They wear a uniform for that, right? That That's the reason why U.S. forces wear uniforms. Um, not just because the government likes to spend oodles of money on this stuff, because it helps tell the difference between uh, a, a valid military target and a non-valid military target or, or a protected person. And the Colossus really gums it up here. And your point is a great one. Not only are they not wearing any uniforms as they fly, but those ships aren't flying with any kind of mark designation mm -hmm. uh, to, to identify them. Uh, you look at the, the polar opposite, the Rebel Alliance, they're this ragtag bunch, but they've at least got some semblance of a uniform. They all wear that distinctive orange flight suit. Uh, they've got rebel markings on their helmets. It, it is easy to distinguish. They're not bleeding in and out of civilian populations. And so from the First Order's perspective, like how do they know that, that say, Hype Faison is flying as a racer in his capacity as just a thrill seeker or flying as a combat pilot? that's looking to attack them. It's a really tough estimation. And in international law, you, you've generally got protection as a civilian from direct attack, but you can lose that status. You can lose that protection if you take direct part in hostilities. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this calculus of for how long are you taking part in hostilities? Certainly like while they're flying around and shooting at TIE fighters, like that would be okay. That That's, you know, they're fair targets then. What about when they're docking to refuel? What about when they're scrambling and they're, they're still in the, the hangar and stuff is being loaded? What if they're just sitting eating dinner, like up in the, the tower with uh, Indoza Tower? You know, where do you mark the line? It becomes very difficult to, to tell. And uh, I'm sure those, all those things are going through commander pyre's head and you just can't see them they just don't have time in this show to illustrate all those thoughts that they really want to <laughs> yeah but I, I think what's interesting too is that you know they they kind of do get into it in the fact that they force cam consistently or 533 to wear her helmet like she yeah. gets kind of you know um disciplined several times for not having her helmet on and you know that kind of goes back to they all need, even all these cadets have this black uniform. They have to have the helmet. They're indistinguishable. They have to look the same. Um, whereas opposed to the people on the Colossus, don't look the same. They're, you know, racers and, and pirates and all, all of these kinds of, you know, mishmash group of people that is collected in one place that have different allegiances, different goals, different ideas. Um, and they're not really any sort of, fighting group 
Yeah. I would and that's say. That's got to be. Oh, go ahead, Josh. No, no, you first. You first. I was, Gabby, you make a great point because that. I don't think the first order cares who's on the Colossus. <laughs> they just want to blow the whole thing up. But like, they should be at least thinking about who's aboard that vessel because mm -hmm. that's got to come into the calculus, or at least it should, in terms of how do they deal with this threat. I mean, you know, the the one of the big takeaways from World War II and one of the things that came out again and again in the trials of some of these German officers were the absolute scale of the destruction that they wrought versus the necessity that they needed to, uh, to take that action. And they again and again tried to justify it by saying, hey, we had to, to play this scorched earth card and destroy everything because we had to pull back. We couldn't leave anything for the, the enemy. It was necessary to do this sort of stuff. I think that the first order would make that same sort of argument. We can't leave anybody alive on the Colossus because they're all a threat now. They've proven that. But in reality, it's a mixed bag of civilians and maybe quasi-military folks, I don't know, uh, aboard that vessel. And if they're doing what they should be doing, that means estimating their level of destruction, you know, how much do they need to destroy to accomplish that military objective? So I, Commander Pyre is just going to say blow the whole thing up, but <laughs> he should be weighing the scales. So this, this makes me flash back to the political theory course that I had at Davis that uh, Larry Peterman taught. So this goes back, back far in time. <laughs> and uh, it makes the Colossus a city-state. Uh, yeah. They're their own little entity. That They all know that Hosnian Prime was destroyed, so billions of people were killed in one blow by the First Order, so they know everyone's a target. They're all forced to work together. And I see uh, echoes of the American Revolution that not everyone had a uniform. Everyone was just kind of tossed in, and it was unite or die and i see that they have this unite or die situation so you have people uh exercising their right to self-defense and they formed a militia in order to do so and because the main body of government has either been obliterated or down to uh reforming uh with whatever continuity of government plan that they have uh they have to do what they have to, to survive uh, and and defend themselves and their their home uh, from being destroyed by the first order. So I, I see everything that they're doing as being defensible. I don't see uh, it's definitely not Plan A. But when you have billions of people wiped out and you are picking up the pieces, so you a fascist organization does not kill you. Uh, I think what they're doing is legitimate. Uh, I also think that makes them, they should, they should consider themselves a target of the First Order. They'd be dumb not to, considering what's happened. So they, they, they have to be on notice that everybody's a target and nobody's safe. Because civilians are being targeted. It's like not plan A, B, or C. It's like plan X. <laughs> like <laughs> having to salvage the wreckage of a First Order ship to get fuel so that you can escape as the First Order is hot on your heels. Like they've run out of plans. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and as Lincoln described the Civil War, uh, it exceeded the jurisdiction of any court. So it's <laughs> <That's> like, <true. laughs> 
it's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're flying by wire here. This is uh, definitely not what we want to be doing. But that does raise great issues that we started seeing in Livewire, where we see both the First Order training its cadets, and, and we have kind of the Eddie Haskell uh, schmuck, who I'm uh, forgetting his name, and, uh, and Tam. Oh, Jace uh, Rucklin. Yeah. Like and, the most, the broiest Star Wars name that's ever been created. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I instantly don't like you. You're it's just, you scream obnoxious jock. And, uh, and the, the ace is learning how not to just be, you know, a, a stunt crew, but actually fight together. And uh, since we, we've touched on some of this, one thing that I noticed that, uh, I don't know if you guys picked up, all the droids for the flyers were having their own wardroom meeting. Did, <laughs> I managed did, to miss that. I, I, I didn't see that either. The droids were all hanging out, talking and beeping to each other. So it's like, huh. They've unionized. <laughs> yeah, it's like, are they organizing? Are they, uh, uh, what are they talking about? And is it just like a social gathering or are they like doing what their, <laughs> their biological counterparts are doing with like, okay, how the hell do we survive? Like if they could be chain smoking, they would. Uh, no, you know what I just imagined down the, down the road with a resistance episode is having some character um, doing a spew like Hermione organization of the droids. <laughs> Um, and advocating for them that they're not getting treated um, correctly and fairly and just organizing a whole campaign and just have like that be an entire episode. It's OP didn't get pit. it in the actual movies. The It'll be OP you. pit, the janitor. He'll lead the charge there. <laughs> he, he knows unequal treatment better than anybody. Yeah. We want our oil bath and we want it now. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, Anyway, I just saw that, and I I think there are two clips with the with the droids hanging That's out funny. talking. I completely like, missed that. <laughs> oh, I, well, you know, I I I I argue for droids, so you know, I just see this like, wait a minute. L three would be proud. Yeah, it's just what's going on here. Uh, but uh, I love uh, you know the the former Imperial pilot, you know, being asked about uh. Uh, like working together, leave no man behind. And, and you know, he makes a comment about since they didn't do that, like, yeah, that's why we lost. Yeah. It's like <laughs> he learned to be a team player the hard way. <laughs> so, <laughs> which speaks to sort of how they treated their not just their pilots, but just their soldiers in general. I mean, you, I fully expected this to be the moment where Griff finally came out of his shell and just said, hey, look, I've got military training and this and that and that line and his he didn't do that at all and, and that line sort of put a fine point on exactly what you're talking about that they didn't imbue leadership skills or, or teachings on any of these folks any of these line pilots certainly maybe if you survived a fight or two they might look at you a little bit differently but he represents sort of the the gaping hole in their their training, which is that you're, you're cannon fodder, and we don't need to put any more training into you other than 
up, you know, here's up and down on the stick and then here's your trigger. Good luck. <laughs> Keep your helmet on. Don't take that off. And that's about it. And this is the product that you get this old man that can fly a ship, but doesn't know much else. That's just fascinating. Yes. Uh, yes, it is. And isn't he voiced by Steve Stanton? I think so. Yeah. Uh, like what isn't, who isn't voiced by, <laughs> I'm being voiced by Steven Stanton right now. You just don't know it. You guys can see me on video, but this is just lip syncing. He's in a recording studio dubbing over all my, uh, all my lines. Yeah. All three of us. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> oh boy. Um, so let's get into, do the aces have a legal duty to become better pilots? You know, is, is it dereliction of duty if they don't? And, uh, you know, I think Thomas, this, you put this point down and, well, what do you think? I think they've organized themselves into like a quasi-military. I don't know whether that would make them any more than contractors at this point, but certainly in the under military law, you have a, a duty to do your, uh, I guess, to not perform your duty uh, negligently. And, and it's, it's an, just an interesting quirk in the law. You and I, like the three of us in our civilian jobs could get fired by a client. We could, you know, get in trouble from a disciplinary standpoint if we do something wrong, but there's no general criminal liability for just messing up the, the work that you do. It's different in the military. If you do something negligently, say you, you drive poorly and flip a, you know, a Humvee over and somebody gets hurt, you get prosecuted for that sort of thing. And if these pilots are now not just racers, but they're also uh, now some sort of quasi-military, you know, I think Captain Doza, to a certain extent, has an expectation, as do the other pilots, that they're going to be smart about what they do. And I'm looking directly at Hype Faison. You can't see my eyes, but I'm looking at him. Because he sort of, his attitude through this whole episode, up until the end, really puts everybody sort of at risk. He's arrogant, cocky, all the things that you want in a racer that you don't want in a military pilot. So this would be the legal hook to, to sort of hold him accountable for these things. Yes. Well, let's pivot over to the first order, which would be, the, again, the delightful work environment <laughs> of uh, you know, Lieutenant uh, was it Gallic, who's the Gallic. flight instructor from hell. Of, the grandmother uh, no one wants. Yeah. <laughs> Fire hot boy learn. Yeah. It's, you know, her line about cutting the weak. It's like, it's like <laughs> Jesus, lady. It's like that's. Uh, I, I kind of had this impression that like that kid, what our our very bro friend of of the first order was just like taken out and like shot. Like he's done. He's he's over. <laughs> I mean, th they kill people at the slightest thing, and I was like, yeah, no, he his life expectancy is very low right now. Like he is not <laughs> living to the next episode. Well, well, that and think about the pilot. If you're that pilot, it's like. Oh hell! I gotta get out of here. It's like, or because yeah. it's not motivation to do better. That's motivation to, to leave. leave. Yeah, <laughs> or to, to not die at <laughs> best. Yeah. How do I stay alive? Yeah, and because she doesn't care if I die. Like now, granted, Tam, if, if she she gets reprimanded for saving somebody, and it's like that's just bad for morale. Yeah. 
It's interesting because we talked about this last time of, you know, what is the first order doing? You know, what is their kind of recruitment? Because it seems as if it, it's not just a hostile work environment. It's like anything you do can get you killed. And I think in this case, what I saw is, you know, here this, what is his name? Rocklin um, has gotten saved by someone who used to work for um, the resistance um, and, you know, the quote unquote good guys, right? And, and now he survived, he could have been killed um, if they were following the first order's orders. Um, and now he's like, oh shit, if I stay here, like I'm gonna die because I'm clearly an idiot who can't fly very well. Um, his kind of thinking would be to pack up and leave for the resistance where they actually save people if you don't do a good job. So I don't know what their recruitment is. There, there seemed to be almost a reverse recruitment that they're kind of pushing people towards the resistance. I have no, no sympathy for old Jace Rucklin whatsoever. <laughs> this is the same dodo bird that injected like hyper fuel directly into his ship's fuel line in an effort to, to get ahead in racing and who also nearly got Kaz killed on a rust bucket speeder as they were racing out right after they met. Um, and who also probably would have turned in Tam had she not decided to, that, you know, she feared for her life and, and gave up that little comm link to begin with. So it, what, ha whatever Jace <laughs> Ruckland's future is, I could care less. <laughs> I do not care about Jace Ruckland's redemption arc if there is one. <laughs> Jace Demption is not, not something that I care to see. He, he's like an, he's like an evil, immoral Eddie Haskell, and yeah. uh, but with a bro qualities built in. Yeah, and I just, hope I hope OP Pit runs over him with his floor buffer, and he doesn't have to die. Like no. No awful end has to come to him, but just this humiliating defeat at the hands of the saddest sack on the Colossus. You know, he, he could go become a clan with Jar Jar, you know, like, and that's his future. Of, I juggle now. It's yeah. all that I do. Yeah, you're yeah. allowed to stay on a Colossus, but you'll have to juggle 12 hours a day. <laughs> and I'm grateful for what I have. Yeah. It's total humble pie. Uh, yeah, that's, it's just, that's bad for morale. And it, it is. It, it's just, no incentive to save people, no incentive to work together. It's just every man for himself. So you don't die. I yeah. just, uh, yeah, I, I yeah, don't join the first order. No. Well, let's, um, we don't become a pilot and, you know, get trained by Lieutenant Gallic in the first order. Yeah. He'd get assigned to some other squad. Do we have some place where people aren't ordered to commit war crimes? Because I would like to grow good at that division. Is that possible? Uh, he just has to ruthlessly crease pants. Yes. For <laughs> I just, I just, I'm glad to work in the laundromat. I stay out of everyone's way and don't lose any buttons and I'm good. I am good. Um, grateful no one has a long flowing white cape that needs to be clean. Just, just do my thing. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, 
the the whaling episode, the hunt on Selsor Three, and again, I had so many mixed issues mixed feelings about this episode of like, I get wanting to eat, but is, <laughs> is that big, uh, Jakusk, you know, the, the space whale, is that endangered? Are there lots of them? So like, it's there, it's like, what gave like, them the right to go hunting this they, thing? They just yeah. kind of up and decide to go hunting. <laughs> and it's like, does nobody care about the Jakusk? Like, what it is does it have a brain does it have a family is there hunting season for the jacuzzi maybe we don't know maybe that is a baby jacuzzi they killed a little infant jacuzzi hashtag jacuzzi justice justice it's yeah again is this an endangered species or not because we don't go like wow whales are big we could feed lots of people with a whale Plus, we could we could have clean burning whale oil for lamps. Let's let's go. This who's with me? Uh, they can make all of their Colossus military uniforms out of Jakusk skin now. <laughs> that was taking this to its natural conclusion. Hunting. It's like, We're all out of fabric. We need skin uniforms. <laughs> they're they're super comfortable. Yeah, it's rough. This is the sort of expert legal reasoning and analysis that you turn tune into the podcast. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, 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 I just like can't turn off. This is wailing. What the dear God? It's like it's not like like hey look space cows. We're good. It's like burgers for everyone. Just take the Japanese justification for it. It's a Castellan research vessel. <laughs> They're merely harvesting this jacuzzi for scientific purposes. And also and scientists to see what's the most tasty parts. Mm. It's tasty research, Your Honor. Um, I get the necessity to eat, but like that, that was it. That was it. Um, so let's... Uh, is the is the Colossus still a common carrier at this point, or is it a town? Is it oh. like what are they? You're asking yeah. about a legal issue, but all you're thinking about is jacuzzi skin uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about the barbecue because I'm hungry, but still, it's just. I mean, it looked like they threw one hell of a party. Yeah. And- <laughs> okay. My thing too was they seemed to cook the entire thing. Where are they saving this? If it's this true. was supposed to be for their quote unquote rations, to, they make it seem like they're now fed for a year. And it's like, but they cooked it all in one time. Are they just going to like eat and hibernate? You know, is that the thing they, they, they might have been like freezers. They might have been like salting it. And like there could be like turkey. Yeah, there could be like freezers full of it. Like, again, it's like, would people get, now we have jacuzzi stew. Now we have chili. Now, that was burgers. Um, but, you know, it, it raises a good, all of this raises a good point because the issue of endangered or, or otherwise threatened species is something that is that Star Wars is not foreign to. I remember, Josh, you and I, I don't know if it was a, um, article or part of a a podcast in the past about the clone wars but you've got that really interesting two episode arc in the clone wars where they the zillow beast where it's like the last beast of this kind on malastare and uh the the republic wants to use it for advanced armor research and they tackle this moral question of whether it's okay to kill this beast uh so 
I think if there's an organization in the galaxy, in the Star Wars galaxy, that cares about this sort of issue and would have laws about it, it would be the New Republic, right? This shining beacon, this city on the hill. So I don't think it's way out of left field to expect that they would have laws, at least before they were blown up by Starkiller Base, that would protect creatures like this, even vicious, like crazy looking creatures like a jacuzzi. So, and I, I would fully expect, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they had regulations on hunting and, and limitations on that sort of thing, uh, just like the United States has for different species. I, I would agree with that. It's just, this thing came out of left field. It's like, I get the need to eat. <laughs> But this was like a full-on whaling expedition, and it was it was their Moby Dick. But they won, like, and they they now have clean burning jacuzzi oil for the lamps on the ship, and um, uh, maybe they're, you know, what else can they make from the carcass of this thing? So they, yeah, it's it's such a hard turn. Um, I was a little afraid that Star Wars was going to kill a space dog on screen, that we were going to see the end of Buggles. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one, because when they brought him in, I was like, oh, no, these people are really hungry, and there's a dog, and this is going to get weird. <laughs> it's like That's why this episode was rated M for Mature. <laughs> It's like, was, it's like, are we going to get an old yeller situation here? How is this going to end? Of uh, How is this going to play out? Uh, yeah, and it's Disney, so they're not above to kill something cute. So yeah. I'll, I'll just say as a brief, brief last aside on this episode, that as we crafted this outline, I did not picture this episode being the one where the left turn got taken <laughs> yeah. sharply down a rabbit hole, but I'm glad that it has. <laughs> oh, People it, need to care about jacuzzi. It haunted me. It's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting this. Let's go hunting. <laughs> something, a giant flying space whale. Uh Okay, it's, it's like, okay. Uh, there's been reports of like a giant, I think, I don't remember what coast it's on, but there's like a giant shark that people have noticed along one of the coasts. No one's thinking like, hey, let's make dinner. Like that's not, we're not gonna go feed homeless people with the shark. <laughs> I like that they kill him with a giant version of the E-Web blaster cannon, the one that the snow troopers use on yes. Hawk trying to bring down the Falcon. It's just hooked up to a giant like power pack effectively that I guess CB-23 is able to run. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, one of, that was a great scene at the end where the dust clears and Buggles is right there and then this giant creature is just dead right there. <laughs> and I don't know how they harvested that thing to be quite frank. But uh, yeah, that was a neat shot. Yeah, what did they send down to pick that thing up? Or did they, again, send a crew down to the planet to butcher it? Like, how yeah, did this if, work? Hey, if, if you want to eat, pick up a saw. It works. <laughs> Everyone get an axe. It's yeah. like, <laughs> and c c coveralls you don't care about because we can make new ones at the end. <laughs> You'll be fine. Oh, plenty of skin. <laughs> So anyway, let's let's go to the engineer, which is um, 
reminded me uh, of the the old TV series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which just had security breach after security breach after security <laughs> breach because no one vetted anyone coming on board uh, the Sea View, and like that was my, it's like are you guys gonna vet her? You're just gonna we've all gone through something traumatic so we're all just very trusting right now like what happened to background checks um so first up is there a duty to answer that distress call no i don't think there is not under these circumstances i mean certainly they debate this i mean it, they come to a pretty quick conclusion on it but there's an immediate thought that this could be a threat and I think given the ever-present security concern that ends up biting them right in the tail, like midway through this episode, um, they could have easily justified continuing on and just ignoring this call um, because the First Order has a far reach and it was not out of the, the, the realm of possibility that this could all be one big setup, which it ended up being. <laughs> Yeah, Gabby, your your thoughts? I did actually did not see this episode, but oh. I would <laughs> I would agree that they did not have you know they're not um, again it goes back to are they a military vessel? Do they have any duties? Um, and if they're just kind of a flying apartment complex, they really they're <laughs> citizens. They're you know they're a flying apartment complex that really doesn't have to go you know investigate anything you know they can stick their head out their window and see what's going on but they don't have to <laughs> they don't have to get involved in any way yeah there's this is where my years of boating come in so you know like yeah there's no general duty to rescue so like that's a universal con constant uh you have the coast guard motto of um uh you know, you have to go, but you don't have to come back. So there's a little bit of that, of uh, like, if you have to go out and save somebody like the old lifeboat saving service, where the Colossus is not uh, like the Coast Guard. Like they're not, that's not their gig. On the flip side, mariners generally don't leave others to die. Um, like I remember uh, on one cruise, Back in 1995, we were in a going up the coast storm. We were having 10 foot waves, and uh, another vessel called and they said, We might have lost somebody over the side. Would you turn around and look? And I, my reply was, No, we're not risking our lives on a maybe because you guys can't count. And I was right. They miscounted because some dude was asleep in his bunk. And, uh, but they asked everyone to endanger their lives because like, oh, we're not sure. Uh, 12-ish people. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't count. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. I was just like, no. So looking at that is I, they're, they're, they didn't have a duty in my point of view, but it is good seamanship to not leave others to die. And if you're in a position to help, you go do that because you might someday be in the need help and thus you want to answer the call. So yeah, 
but anyway, uh, Thomas, as a military man, your thoughts? No, I, th I think going back to what I said before, if I'm Captain Doza, I say keep going. I mean, it, clearly the, uh, the threat they face is a significant one. They do no vetting on this whatsoever. It's not, there, there's no debating the ship's identity code, whether asking around whether anybody has any idea who this is. They don't even try to reach out and make contact with this vessel. Uh, I'm not sure their communications were up, but they don't even make an attempt to even cordon off uh, Nina, the, the engineer that they rescue, and question her about much of anything. She just sort of comes aboard and quickly integrates herself by proving that she's got this engineering savvy, and they just let her go around all parts of the ship, uh, accessing potential not even potential, accessing sensitive areas of the ship, which ends up, again, coming back and biting them right in the rear by the end of the episode. Again, he's Admiral Nelson on the sea view at this point. Yeah. He's just, welcome aboard! It's like, Full access. <laughs> it's like, background! <laughs> Check our computers. Oh, wow, everything's encrypted? That should have been step one. Uh, <laughs> you, sequ you sequester her and you question her because everyone should be on high alert of like, hey, what the hell's happening here? Is she a bounty hunter? What's going on? Well, and it's interesting that the one person that sort of picks apart this facade that she has is a pirate, Sonara. You know, even Kaz, as they're going to investigate her ship, he's like, oh, there's some scratch marks and stuff on the outside of her hull. Like, maybe she did, did get attacked by the First Order. And Sonara's like, be quiet, you. That's just, like, wear and tear. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's like, dude, Sonara infiltrated the Colossus Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like I know how this works. <laughs> it's like wait, 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 wait. Damsel in distress. I see. I see a pattern here. No. I literally no. tricked you. <laughs> Doing the same gig. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. There's no lizard monkey this time. But no, I I know this routine. Uh yeah. They again voyage to the bottom of the sea. They should have vetted her. Yeah. Uh, now we got into some issues and Gabby, were you, uh, uh, did you bring up the issue of like rules of evidence and exploring Nina's claims? No, that was Thomas. Okay. Yeah, I typed it. So for background, so th Nina, they come into the hangar where the pirates are. This is where you, s the scene that ultimately sets up their, uh, their sleeping arrangements where they're just like laying all over all the crates and the floor and stuff but uh Cragen has his own hangar where his ship is docked nina runs some calculations and alleges that the uh Cragen's warbird gang is using up more than half of the colossus's power and there's this confrontation where Cragen says no i'm not doing that i <laughs> we use our fair share and that's it and nina flashes this data pad and says well that's not what the facts say and there's this interesting back and forth. And at least initially, Niku and Kaz believe Nina because she's got this, this data on her side. And so it, it got me thinking as I was watching the episode, if they, if they put this under the rules of evidence, how does this weigh out? And on one side, you've got uh, Nina is, is probably an expert witness that would have to qualify, kind of give some testimony about her background, 
get tendered and qualified as a witness um, and be able to ex explain and in interpret that data because I don't think the average layperson could look at you know whatever's on her data pad and just intuit it. So she's going to give some testimony there. Cragen's obviously going to say exactly what he said. No, I, I know the power that I draw from the ship, and it's not more than half. And, you know, how would they weigh that? And, and clearly they weigh it wrong up front. They trust implicitly not just the fact that Nina is saying that this is the, the case because she's been helpful so far, but they wave this data around and you see that from time to time. That's why there's, you know, when, when you talk about scientific testing and whatnot, there's, uh, you don't just get to talk about in, in court uh, scientific tests that are done. There's actual, you know, there's a challenge that can be had. There are factors that the court weighs called, called Daubert factors mm -hmm. that the uh, judge has to weigh and, and that you as the proponent of that evidence have to meet to, to introduce certain scientific evidence. And I think if you peeled back, certainly if they, they peeled back and like really analyzed what was on that data pad, clearly it was all BS because it turned out in the end that Cragen was not taking ha more than half the power of the ship. This was just a line she was spinning. Yeah, I recall my uh, evidence professor long ago Professor John Myers taught me how to tie a bow tie. And he discussed the dangers with uh, expert witnesses with jurors frequently go like, ooh, science, and like believe the smart looking dude. And it's like, hey, you know, do, whether it's the Daubert test or the Fry test, mm -hmm. you gotta be able to validate that data. Yeah. And as opposed to, you know, hey, look, she, Nina's smart. <laughs> look, at, she did math. Yeah. And she had fancy graphs that she showed. Yeah. And they didn't bother doing that. Or if you watch Saturday Night Live last night, the, the cold open with, uh, you know, the, the Elizabeth Warren you know, <laughs> joke of, I could explain this to you, but it, your head would explode. And... <laughs> It's like they they don't do that. It's like ooh math, and everyone believes Nina, and it's like mm. yeah. it's like you you fought, and you know with the pirates, you know that they might leave you to die, but uh, like they they at least have like a code of conduct, and are they violating that? So like that was uh, again big issues with with uh, just trusting the data without validating the expert witness. Yeah, and I think, I think the saddest part is, you know, we're obviously talking about this in the context of a fictional program, but, you know, this happens all the time and, and that's why we have things like the Daubert or Fry standards for evidence, but it, it's kind of scary. I'm thinking of this book that one of my professors recommended called Actual Innocence by Barry Sheck of the Innocence Project. And it really talks about the kind of junk sciences like hair uh, follicle testing um, and, you know, different pattern testings that people bought into and people kind of went with because they had graphs, because they had statistics, because, you know, oh, it was science. Um, and, you know, people can really latch on to that. So there is you know, we do have these standards, but sometimes even those standards don't, don't work. So 
Um, unfortunately, what happened in this episode is not kind of uncommon in our judicial system. Poor Cragen just gets <laughs> judged by his tattooed, creepy looking cover. <laughs> But our favorite janitor who keeps getting, you know, crushed, uh, he does get his floor buffer back. And it was working like a charm. He fired mm. that thing right up. I've never seen him happier in this entire series. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So <clears throat> that catches us up on mm. the episodes uh, today. Anakin, I'm just loving the series. Uh I, I mean, God bless what, what what these folks have been doing. I absolutely, uh, you know, parents can watch with their kids uh, or people who grew up watching it are still watching. Uh, and, you know, in a week's time, we're getting The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. And I'm giddy. Uh, I did one post already on um, speculation about, you know, can IG-88... Uh, since we're going to have IG-11 in this series, um, can an IG droid have a valid contract? <laughs> and <laughs> does that mean, you know, uh, you know, like good issues there? Like, you know, mm-hmm. is, is a droid a person for contracting purposes? Um, I'm, I'm interested to see how capacity comes into that because if Taika Waititi is describing this character as very childlike and very innocent, and you're putting a gun in his hand, how, how does that kind of, does he have the capacity to be a soldier? Does he have the capacity to sign a contract as a bounty hunter? Um, you know, and how does that, uh, you know, even though he's a droid, does that factor into it if he's quote unquote childlike? Yeah, because you get droids have personalities, whether it's L3 or, or K2SO, mm-hmm. like, those would be droids that definitely would have capacity for entering a contract. A C-3PO definitely yeah. would. Um, mouse droid? Eh, I don't, <laughs> don't know. Probably not. Uh, depends what the droid does. A mouse droid would be too afraid to even come near the pen, much less <laughs> sign the contract. Yeah, so there's, you know, the droids can have personalities and thus, you know, uh, get into different issues of capacity. Uh, Now, Thomas, you you have some notes on The Mandalorian and your speculation. Like, let's let's get your take on on what we could be looking at. The most fascinating thing for me, and you have a a bit, a quote from Jon Favreau about the broad brush concept behind this being an exploration of, you know, a situation like where you don't have a centralized shogun in Japan or, or you know, the, the wild west, but this idea where you're on the, not only are you on the very fringes of, you know, whatever legal entity is in charge, but you're at a really chaotic point in galactic history where the empire has fallen sort of, but does that surrender, does that peace treaty that's signed at the center of the galaxy extend all the way out? to the, the outer rim, to the uh, to wild space, uh, the, these fringes of the galaxy. And the idea, it, it looks like the, the main arc of this season is going to be around uh, Giancarlo Esposito's character, uh, who appears to be a, uh, a former Imperial moth, 
who maybe commands his own forces. And it's sort of like a, a, a Afghanistan Northern Alliance type situation where you've got these warlords operating independently of their former employers. And the idea that you've got a bounty hunter and a team and, and you know, some droids mixed in there all fighting it out and trying to bring, I don't know about justice in their mind, but some level of order to this part of the galaxy is just absolutely fascinating. Because we've gotten almost no stories from this period of time. That, and you throw in you know, uh, A New Hope with regional governors will have direct control. Well, yeah. Here's a regional governor, and it's and again just because Death Star Two blow blowed up does not mean that the Empire just rolls over and dies. Because mm-hmm. um, if you do have somewhat of decentralized authority, and they're armed and they have resources, so it's not like they're outright in decline that they can be self-sustaining. Why would they just give up? And how long would they last? And yeah. You know, would they be dealing with their own guerrilla warfare for a while, or would they? Could they become self-sustaining, uh, and and become something else? So, wonderful issues. November is going to be very, very busy. <laughs> the latter part of it, and December for that matter. And I think uh, what what also be interesting is to see if by getting information on this time period. Um, not not just leads into the rise of Skywalker and you know how uh, Palpatine comes back and in whatever form he comes back, but may also give us a sense if you know Favreau's describing this as kind of a fall of, after the fall of the Roman Empire, you know maybe we'll get a sense of what this government looks like. What yeah. is the governing power? Is the First Order really this kind of militia group? Is it an actual government? Um, is the resistance actually a government um, and kind of see how that all works out and we'll have all our governmental questions, governmental structure questions answered uh, for the kind of the Star Wars resistance and Star Wars, um, the new series or new films. Yeah, there are many questions. Are we going to see Ray's parents in The Mandalorian? I think that's that's all we... (laughs) Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I've heard somebody say that. It's like, oh God, no! Not everything needs to be collect connected. They uh, I, clearly, clearly, her dad is the Mandalorian, and obviously, her mom is the former Rebel shock trooper Cara Dune. So, I think that that mystery is solved. Yeah, <laughs> when when clearly, uh, you know, like her grandmother was clearly Kira. And her grandfather was Darth Maul. Wait, wait, no, no, that doesn't add up. Um, I saw, no. I saw one today that said um, was speculating whether Ray was Anakin's mother through some weird time hopping mystery, and I was like, that's that's stretching it. That's that's really really stretching it. She went back to the future and didn't make all the right choices that Marty McFly made. <laughs> yeah and the sand people killer yeah no that's a really ugly paradox no it's you know like that's the one part of of uh uh the last jedi that actually had the most meaning of like it's okay that anyone can be special uh 
which clearly was not J.J. Abrams' vision of like, no, it's going to be connected. Yeah. And, and then there's a hard turn. <laughs> so. we, we just climbed ourselves out of the jacuzzi hole and we're teetering on another one. Yeah, just, it's okay. It's like, I'm, I would be happy if Mandalorian had zero connection to yeah. that. It, yeah. it's, there are plenty of stories to tell. Yeah. Uh, you know, like there's speculation about like maybe a kid's involved, like that could be interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the target? And yeah. that, that, you know, what's the bounty for? Um, I think that we'll find out and that, that will be, again, it's a story and we haven't seen this part. Yeah. Uh, I, I do highly recommend uh, listening to any of the fine podcasts that have posted the audio from the press day that the Mandalorian had. Uh, it's on Coffee with Kenobi. I think it's on Fangirls Going Rogue. I, it's on, I believe on Full of Sith. There probably are others uh, that recorded it and posted it. And uh, I just want to go give uh, Favreau and Filoni a hug. I'm like, God, oh, those guys are just such wonderful fanboys um, that it's like, oh, I could just hang out and talk Star Wars with you. And that seems to be what they did. And it's just so adorable. It's like, oh, I, you know, like I feel very good about what's coming uh, because you have people who just love and respect the material working on a live action series. And the, the discussion with the actors, it's like, okay, they, they truly love this and they they feel very um honored to be part of it and uh carl weathers especially just sounds super fun and giddy uh about his role uh so i again listen to the interviews because there's there's some wonderful quotes from all the actors and actresses about about their experience with it uh but yeah i'm I'm giddy for this. I'm giddy for what we get with Kenobi. And uh, did either of you see the interviews with uh, uh, McGregor on Jimmy Kimmel? Yeah, that was fantastic. <laughs> his his description of like his favorite candy was like bizarre. Like, I'm surprised he has any teeth left. He was like talking about his favorite candy as a kid in Scotland. And it was this like awful taffy or something that it would take like hours to chew up. But like somehow hearing him tell this story, you're like, oh, you just go on for an hour telling this story about this like awful candy. And I'll listen to it because you're delightful to listen to. <laughs> it's, again, can we hang out? <laughs> we could barbecue. would be nice. <laughs> we'll have cake. We'll have taffy. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, it, it pairs well with so much. We're right back in the yeah. hole. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if they'll add that to ga at Galaxy's Edge. Chikusk uh, <laughs> burgers. Like when, you know, Grand. This is my twisted personality, but going to Galaxy's Edge and you're standing in the bazaar where they, you know, have like the the fake meat roasting. Uh, you know, I was next to my friend and I went, "It's Ewok," and uh, <laughs> it looks like the right size for an Ewok to be on a rotisserie. <laughs> And uh, just a little soil and green humor for folks. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, uh, but yeah, Jacuzzi burgers. I can see that. I'm gonna try it out. I, I'm <laughs> not gonna lie. 
it's, it's endangered species. That you, you only get so many opportunities. This is like a chicken. Is it a mammal? What's it like? <laughs> Space manta ray. <laughs> we've, awesome. we've all fallen back down into the hole now, and we're not getting out. <laughs> it's just so much fun. Um, uh, yeah, and do they have like a FDA that made sure it was safe? No. Um, again, good common carrier issue. Like, how much of a government does DOSA have to deploy here? If I get sick off this Jakusk meat, can I sue Aunt Z? <laughs> <laughs> was it because it was how I was prepared or because of the underlying meat? We don't know. Uh, anyway, we've, uh, we've covered a lot. And... I know we'll get have we'll nerd out weekly on uh, Mandalorian, so it's a, it's a great time to be a Star Wars fan. So with that, either of you have anything uh, to add for the good of the order? No, I have a hankering for Jakusk right now. So, <laughs> Let's see if I can go find some of that. I'm go, definitely go. rethinking the meatballs I had for dinner. <laughs> Well, right. Now. Was it turkey or was it jacuzzi? You'll never know. <laughs> mm, just like mom. Read that ingredients it. label very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> so, with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Uh, I assure you, we will be back for the Mandalorian and more resistance because this is a wonderful time to be a nerd. Uh, with that, stay geeky. Stay geeky, America.